Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we work to unlock the amazing, the suspenders, the epic, the influential, the epic again, power of storytelling and help you harness that power in your everyday lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Uh, Kev, did, have I told you my Santa Claus and Coca-Cola fun fact? No, I don't think it's made into the uh, any episodes. So you're cleared. Ooh, cool. Um, well, because we're getting closer to the holidays, I would love to tell you this story about how Santa Claus got this image of like big man in red cloaks and like that whole vibe. And that was actually the first reported uh, documentation of Santa as this, this known presence in North America of this like big man in a red outfit uh, with a big beard. It was actually done by Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola did this huge branding campaign long ago where essentially they showed off this uh, Santa Claus as this big round man in red. Before then, most of the pictures and images we have of Santa was actually a thin man in a green cloak. But Coca-Cola changed that because Coca-Cola Red is such a central part of their brand that for their holiday campaigns, they literally rebranded Santa. And now for billions, million, I don't know how many people, many, many people um, worldwide see Santa as this big man in red outfit solely because Coca-Cola wanted him to be red because red is so influential and important to the Coca-Cola brand. And I just love that. I love this idea of storytelling. I love this idea that, and we talk a little bit about, and I'm sure we'll talk more about how commercialized holidays are, especially in America, how there's all these holidays like Valentine's Day, like Halloween, uh, like Christmas that are huge spending events in America because all these brands have created or pumped up these holidays as ways to spend money, right? So it's so interesting how Coco jumped on that kind of capitalist American train to be like, oh, it's uh, Christmas. Think about red. Think about Santa Claus. Think about Coca-Cola. And there's also, Coca-Cola is such an old company that there's so many of these fun facts about Coca-Cola where they're like, oh, you're kidding. And a lot of them has to do with them building this brand that's lasted hundreds of years and will last longer. Yeah, it's really fun for me, at least, to, to look at how a lot of holidays really catch on because of these marketing campaigns. Like uh, holidays like Christmas and Halloween are not culturally native to China, for example. But this past Halloween, I've definitely seen way more people who are in China who are more enthusiastic about this festival on social media than I was and I've been living in the United States for six plus years. Anyways, that was a little bit of a sidetrack, sidetrack intro today. But uh, Kev, who are we talking to this week? Today, we are talking with someone who is an expert in a really cool field. Um, Dr. Avi Goldfarb is a professor uh, at University of Toronto, and he's uh, the chair of artificial intelligence and healthcare at the, the Rotman School of Business. He is also author of some fantastic 
books uh, related to the field of AI, including the Prediction Machine, which Grob loves. Uh, and also, he is coming out with a new book called Power and Prediction The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. So, this is going to be a very insightful conversation where we try to demystify AI and uh, understand AI economics and also how storytelling plays a part into this seemingly very technical field. So let's get started. Today, we're so glad to be joined by Dr. Avi Goldfarb, um, who has an amazing story and a lot of great insights that we cannot wait to get into. Um, so Avi, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Toronto and then uh, for in grad school in the late 90s, I went to, to Chicago to Northwestern University in the econ department, did my PhD in economics. And um, I was looking to figure out, you know, what should I do my dissertation on? And my first paper was a study of the beer industry, and particularly the decline of Schlitz beer. Okay. And in the, in the 1970s. And then I was looking for my next paper and I was intrigued by a bunch of research on the impact of advertising on cigarettes. And I had this moment in the middle of my third year of my PhD saying, I don't want to be the big beer and cigarettes guy. Okay. So I started to look around for something else to study. And by then it was 1999. Uh, and there was this really cool thing happening that no one really understood, which was the internet. And so I, I remember deciding, okay, well, since no one knows anything about that, that's the kind of thing that I could do my PhD on. And no matter what I find, it'll be new. So I decided to, you know, to study the internet and the economic impact of the internet. And my dissertation was about search engine competition back when there really was search engine competition. Google was in my data set and they were the 17th most popular search engine in the country. Um, from that, I then uh, you know, graduated, went to the University of Toronto, moved from economics into, I'm in the marketing department. And uh, my research in the early days focused on understanding sort of how did the in internet uh, impact society and impact marketing that led to a bunch of work on online advertising and to privacy. <clears throat> and then in 2012, um, my co-author and colleague, Jay Agarwal, started this organization called the Creative Destruction Lab which is a program for helping science-based startups scale. And in the very first year at the lab, we had this company that said they were doing AI for drug discovery. And 10 years ago, anybody talking about AI seemed crazy. And the idea that an artificial intelligence was gonna help anybody figure out which uh, you know, drugs were gonna save people's lives seemed like science fiction. And so we thought, well, this is interesting. And let's dig a little into this. And then the next year, we had a couple more companies, partly because we were sitting in Toronto and a lot of these companies were coming out of Jeff Hinton's lab a few blocks down the street from our business school in the, in the computer science department. And then by 2015, we had a flood of companies uh, coming out of University of Toronto and Waterloo and a few other places that were AI companies for all sorts of applications. And at that point, um, Jay, Joshua and I, my co-authors and I decided that uh, we really wanted to get our heads around this. And so we started to think through what 
what do the economics of AI look like? And take the the tools that we um, learned from the first decade and a half of our career studying the economic impact of the internet, combined with the insights of the, by then, dozens of startups and by now hundreds of startups that we've seen trying to commercialize AI in our lab uh, to create, in our first book, Prediction Machines. And then, uh, you know, with five more years of, of data and information, it's led to our new book, Power and Prediction. To kind of define the context of our conversation, what is AI really? What is this AI concept you are speaking of with you know, your research? Because I feel like, you know, there, there can be so many stories and stigmatizations around that, that people don't necessarily understand what we're talking about. Okay. So the reason we're talking about artificial intelligence you know, uh, in 2022, and we weren't talking about it so much in 2002, it's because a very, this very particular branch of AI research, this very particular branch of, really it's a branch of computational statistics has gotten much better, and that's machine learning tools. And we can think about that as prediction. Okay, so uh, prediction in an economic sense has gotten better, faster, and cheaper. So that's not to say that there's not, you know, someday we might not have an artificial general intelligence that can do everything humans do, uh, but maybe better, like a machine that can really think. That might happen someday. Uh, that's been 20 to 50 years away since the 1960s. And it continues to be 20 to 50 years away if you talk to the experts. So that's, that's a really cool technology. It's an exciting technology, but it's not the reason we're uh, seeing commercial deployment of AI today. Uh, the reason we're seeing all this excitement around AI today is because of machine learning technology we can think about as prediction. And from there, what is AI economics? AI economics um, is first to say that the reason we're talking about machine learning today is because prediction's gotten better, faster, and cheaper. And then to say, what's prediction for? A prediction in and of itself has no value. If uh, someone comes to you and they say, hey, I have an AI, and you say, what's it for? And they tell you it'll provide you with insights, then you should run or at least walk away slowly. Okay? That means that person doesn't know what the prediction's for. What a prediction's for is it helps you make better decisions. And so if, uh, if you ask somebody what their AI is for, they should be able to describe the decisions that the prediction will support. So... AI economics is first the recognition that we have better, faster, cheaper prediction. Second, uh, the uh, going back to econ 101, when something is cheap, you use it more. So if coffee is cheap, you do more, you buy more coffee. If prediction is cheap, we're going to do a lot more prediction. And then to say, well, if prediction's cheap, what becomes more valuable? What are the complements? Just like when coffee gets cheap, it's good to be in the cream and sugar business. What is it good to be, you know, what gets more valuable uh, as AI starts deploying at scale? And we emphasize data, which is no surprise. You know, you came out of a data analytics master's program. That's, you know, data becomes much more valuable because that's the core input into the predictions. And then there's this thing we call judgment, which is uh, knowing which predictions to make and what to do with those predictions once you have them. And that is an inherently human skill. And that is maybe the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge 
with using machine learning tools. Because in our human brains right now, when you make decisions, you're combining the prediction and the judgment together. And it's hard for you to figure out what is what. What the machine learning tool does, what AI does, is it provides you with a prediction. And that means it forces you to decouple the prediction from the rest of the decision. And that creates opportunity because you can make much better decisions once you have the prediction in place. But it also creates challenges uh, with respect to disruption because maybe the, the people who are really good at doing the prediction and judgment together are not the people who are going to be great at figuring out what to do with the prediction once the machine provides it. And so that creates... Um, you know, that creates op opportunities for entrepreneurs to think creatively about what that decoupling of prediction for the rest of the decision can offer. And it creates threats to established organizations, to established businesses, uh, because they might have uh, some of their uh, power taken away. So can I tell you a story around that? Since yes. it's storytelling. Okay. Absolutely. We love stories. So, okay. Um, so the story takes place in Flint, Michigan. And I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a water crisis in Flint, Michigan. They discovered yes. that a mm -hmm. bunch of the pipes in Flint, Michigan had lead. And lead is a deadly neurotoxin, and you do not want to drink water that has lead in it. Okay. And so the city, among other things, started to try to dig up and replace all the lead pipes. Problem is, the only way to figure out if a pipe going into a house is lead is to dig it up. Okay, And so... Uh, much of the effort in replacing a pipe is uh, already done once you discover that the pipe has lead. And so um, two professors at the University of Michigan built a machine learning tool to predict which houses likely had lead pipes. And the city used that tool uh, before digging, and they were right something like 80% of the time. Okay, so... Four out of every five houses uh, where they dug to figure out if the pipes were lead, the pipes were lead. That's a, you know, a pretty good success rate. Then people started to complain because some people were not having their pipes dug up. And they say, how come the people the street over get their pipes dug up and not mine? That doesn't seem fair. I want to know for sure that my pipes aren't lead. And so they complained to their politicians. And the politicians said, well, you know what? You're right. It doesn't seem fair. You who, who vote are complaining to me. And somehow this algorithm that's, you know, we don't really know what's going on is just, is, you know, allocating who gets to, to have their pipe stuck up. That's not fair. We're going to go systematically throughout the city, street by street, house by house, and make sure everybody's safe and comfortable. So they did that. And the success rate went from 80% to 20% which meant that hundreds, if not thousands of people were now drinking toxic water that they would not have been drinking had they continued to use the machine learning tool. The Atlantic called it a feel-good story, feel-good AI story gone wrong. But the story didn't stop there because, because they decoupled the prediction and the judgment, right? It was clear what the right decision was. It was, it was clear that it was wrong to go with a 20% accuracy rate over an 80% accuracy rate because those people felt it was, you know, because it was more systematic. And so a judge ultimately ruled that the city had to follow the professor's prediction tool. And it went, and that success rate went back up from 20 to 
about 70%. And so as a consequence, uh, again, um, you know, people got their lead pipes replaced and were drinking, uh, and a lot of people were now drinking clean water who otherwise would have been drinking toxic water. Now, the story on where does that uh, play out in terms of power is because of that decoupling, once you had a prediction, it was very clear what the wrong decision was. And so the people who always used to make decisions, the politicians, when it was clear enough that they were making the wrong decision, they were overruled. And we ended up using the AI combined with the judge's decision in this case that uh, the people with the highest likelihood of having lead pipes were the ones who should have their pipes replaced. I think that's such a clear story about how prediction works and how uh, the importance of taking these steps, taking these systematic steps in AI to make clear predictions and how uh, the drop in cost in prediction has led to this kind of explosion in the field. Um, and I think that's that's so interesting because it's, it's a way that AI was used to directly impact the wellness of someone's life. But I can also see because of the way stories about AI are told, because of this kind of big term, artificial intelligence, AI, there's fear there because it, again, impacting someone's life. Can you tell me a little bit about, in your experience, about how this term AI is seen in the general public and how that's affected your work? Sure. The starting point uh, for almost every talk I give about AI is to point out that this is not the artificial intelligence we see in science fiction. And so um, I often will have a slide with images from science fiction, whether it's from Star Wars or from the Terminator or the Matrix or elsewhere, saying, look, this is the popular image of an intelligent machine. It's not impossible. As I said to you before, I actually don't think this idea of an artificial general intelligence is impossible. I think it's likely. But it's not the technology we're talking about today. When you hear AI, don't think a, a machine that can do just about everything humans do. Instead, think prediction machine. And that's where the advances have been over the past 10 years. That's where the commercial opportunities lie. Then I want to point out that prediction's a big deal, right? So it's not, yeah, it's, it's a prediction machine, but prediction can be transformative because a prediction's an input into decision-making and decision-making is everywhere. Um, that's with one important caveat. So we wrote Prediction Machines. We published it in 2018 and we were super excited about a revolution that was about to start. And so we thought the you know, industry was going to change as uh, people realized what they could do with prediction. Okay. And a lot of the barriers over the next two years on the technology side started to be overcome by companies who are investing in it, like, you know, collecting enough data, having, you know, uh, people, you know, master students and others who are good at analytics, that it's not solved, but we've made major progress there. And yet, even by you know, 2021, even today, we don't see that many industries that have been transformed by AI. And so that's the starting point of our new book, which is we wrote prediction machines thinking this revolution was about to happen. And here we are five years later and it hasn't happened. What went wrong? There's a number of possibilities. One is, it's just not that big a deal of the technology. To be clear, I think that's not what went wrong. Uh, the other is that in order for a technology to really be transformative, we have to reinvent the way we live and the way we work. 
that process of co-invention, of um, organizational innovation, of complementarities takes time. And the, the analogy I think is most powerful is understanding the story of electricity. So if you go back and you read what people were saying in the 1880s about electricity, it was clear that for those who were paying attention, they knew that electricity was going to be a big deal. It was clear that the electric light and the electric motor and a handful of other technologies were going to change the way we worked and lived. But it wasn't until the 1920s, 40 years later, that the median household and the median factory in the U.S. were electrified. Why did it take 40 years for a technology that it should be clear to everybody was going to be amazing? Well, we had to reinvent the way uh, we lived and worked. So, for example, the first factories that used electricity took out their old power source and put in a new one. So you'd have a factory in the 1880s that was organized around, say, the steam engine. That was the power source. What do I mean it was organized around the steam engine? I mean it was literally organized around the steam engine because the farther away the machines were from the power source, the more energy got dissipated. And so they structured the geography of the factory around the power source. So the most power-hungry machines were as close to the power source as possible. Then the first factories that electrified, they said, oh, you know what? For where we are, electricity is going to be cheap power. And they took out the steam engine, put an electric motor in the center of the factory, but they didn't move any of the machines. And it saved a little bit on energy. And this was like a, what we call a point solution. Took out one point and dropped in the, the electricity, electric motor in the same place. And that saved a little on energy and didn't really transform the factory. It wasn't widely adopted. It was only for the particular factories where the steam engine was an expensive way of operating or the water wheel. Then over the next 40 years, people realized that electricity wasn't just cheap power, but it enabled you to decouple the power source from the machines. And once you could decouple the power source from the machines, you could organize your workflow differently with inputs coming in one end and outputs coming out the other over a, typically a big flat surface uh, where you'd want cheap land because you'd want to be able to spread out the workflow. It was a different kind of factory. It was much more productive. And it allowed people to, uh, allowed businesses to build products much more cheaply and uh, with much better you know, quality control that would have existed in the old style factories that were steam powered. But that took a long time to reimagine what the factory would look like to take advantage of the decoupling of the machines from the power source. That's what we call a system solution. In those 40 years, those 40 years are the between times, the time between seeing the potential of a technology and recognizing what it can actually deliver. And so we think with AI going forward, but we, we haven't figured out what the organization of the future is that takes advantage of better, faster, and cheaper prediction. We have a couple examples. We have Google and we have a handful of others that are really uh, transforming you know, aspects of the way we work and live through better prediction. But for most industries and most companies, they haven't been able to do that reimagining yet. Now, I'd like to hope it's not going to be another 40 years till we see the impact of AI on society uh, at scale. But I do think we need to recognize that it's not just a point solution. It's not about taking out some human process and dropping in a machine 
That happens. Lots of companies will do that, but it's necessarily going to be incremental. The big picture is when we can redesign a system to take advantage of the technology in order to deliver new value to ultimately to our customers. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting because, you know, like you said, a lot of companies talk about AI a lot. A lot of companies talk about uh, integrating these technologies. We see like uh, Facebook talking about um, using AI to find uh, spam or hate speech. We hear, we're hearing uh, Bob Chapek and Disney talking a lot about how they want to connect Disney Plus to the parks to use predictions to see based on what they were doing in the park, what should we recommend on Disney Plus? So we're hearing prediction being talked about a lot and AI being talked about a lot and these big buzzwords being thrown out. Do you, would you feel, do you think a lot of these big companies are trying to kind of implement more point solutions and kind of the way to go about this is more working with startups to build them in a way that they long-term grow? What is that kind of relationship in your mind? Okay. So yes, most big companies are thinking about point solutions because they don't want to mess with their workflow. Uh, they don't want to change, um, you know, that requires figuring out how to often it will require a reorg, figuring out who should be responsible for what in the presence of better prediction. It'll require new ways of, uh, coordinating and working together because now that one part of your organization is responding on a like daily or hourly basis to these predictions, Everyone else has to come along and uh, you know be able to, to coordinate. So, like organizations have these we call standard operating procedures. They have these rules, um, and the rules are necessary to make sure everybody uh, is at least marching in the same direction. But once you have a prediction machine, in principle, the idea is instead of just following a rule all the time, you're going to see what that prediction is, and you're going to make a decision. You're going to do different things based on the state of the world. But once you're doing different things based on the state of the world. The rest of the company has to know what you're doing and your suppliers need to know what you're doing and your customers need to know what you're doing. That requires uh, rethinking often of the you know, of process of the way we operate and potentially delivering a new kind of value. Uh, that's hard. And so instead, what we're seeing are people looking at the low-hanging fruit saying, hey, here's a process uh, that we currently have some manual way to do it. Let's use a prediction tool for that. So, you know, the... You know, a Disney Parks example would be uh, you have some prediction about how long the lines are going to be. And it used to be there was someone standing in a line who would give you like this, you know, this wooden thing that you walk to the end and then they'd be able to time it. Oh, it's taking 45 minutes for to get people to go through the line. And then they're using AI tools to predict that. That will help, you know, also tell people what rides are going to like. Okay. What you just described is potentially a way to deliver more value which is to then use what's happening at the park to provide a new kind of service at Disney Plus, a new kind of... Now, maybe it's not a system level change, it's, it's somewhat incremental, but at least it's delivering a different kind of value than just doing the same thing a little bit better through AI. And that's where a lot of the opportunities lie, thinking through what can you... like Thinking through the mission of the company, what are you actually trying to achieve? What's your goal? And then um, how can you better deliver on that mission in the presence of prediction? You know, thinking through the role of mission in delivering value is essential. And that's, that's a very much a storytelling aspect of this. So you know, each company uh, and each CEO should be able to describe what the mission of the company is. And then once you know the mission, you can think through how better prediction can allow you to deliver that. So think about an airport. 
I was just at LAX last week. It's a huge airport. Okay. And they, they have a lot of excellent services at LAX. Okay. So there's pretty good restaurants. There's all sorts of services. Highly dependent on the terminal. <laughs> it's highly dependent on the terminal. Fair enough. Okay. So LAX is good. Now, Seoul Incheon Airport is fantastic. It's often rated the best airport yep. of the entire world. Okay. So I don't know if you've been, it's pretty spectacular. So the restaurants and the shopping is at a whole nother level. And there's like theater and, you know, fantastic hotel and massage chairs everywhere. It's just, it's a great airport. And it's part of like a multi-billion dollar investment on the part of the government over the past few decades, the Korean government. Now, what's the mission of Seoul Incheon Airport? The mission of Seoul Incheon Airport is to ensure smooth air transportation. Ensuring smooth air transportation has almost nothing to do with the hotel, the restaurants, the shopping, and all that. You need all that stuff because you have bad prediction. If you knew how long it would take you to get to the airport through security, then you just walk right on the plane and the airport itself would be a shed. In fact, we have an example of that. You know, if you fly private, which someday we all may aspire to do, or maybe not, I don't know, but I've been told if you fly private, uh, the airports are sheds. There's like a, there's a few chairs and some coffee and that's it. Why? Because if you fly private, you arrive at the airport and you get on the plane. You don't spend any time in the airport. You don't have to deal with that uncertainty of getting through security and traffic to get to the airport. It's the ultimate airport, uh, you know, ensuring smooth air transportation experience. So we can imagine how could Seoul Incheon Airport or LAX or any other airport do a better job delivering value, delivering on the mission of ensuring smooth air transportation once we have good predictions about how to get through uh, to the airport and through security, how long it's going to take. And part of the answer might be all that architecture that exists, those billions and billions of dollars that exist around keeping you happy when you're bored at the airport are no longer necessary. We can reimagine the airport to be more like the private terminal. In every industry, you can think through what's your mission. Uh, and then once you understand the mission, you can think through, are there ways we can deliver on that mission better once we can do better prediction, do a better job at filling in missing information? We very interesting perspective and also on that on that story you told about the airport i thought it was really interesting as well it's kind of you know reimagining an airport to be like a garage or a parking lot where you don't think about having a cup of coffee while you're heading down to your own car so that's something you know that, that's really interesting for for me um kind of reimagining uh what we're so used to and we've been talking about how AI is sort of the next electricity uh, and the fact that so many of the industries has been transforming so far, it happened because it's more convenient for those industries. They can more easily deploy point solutions that don't necessarily disrupt their like more fundamental workflow. But I, I know your new book, uh, goes into uncovering the disruption opportunities. Can you think of an example where this kind of more systematic disruption has happened? Yeah. Okay. So it hasn't happened that much yet, but mm -hmm. here's, uh, you're not old enough to remember this, uh, but some of your audience might be. Before the internet, if you wanted to go look something up, you would first go to the encyclopedia 
that you may have had at home. But failing that, you would go to a place called a library. Okay. I know libraries still exist, mm -hmm. but you probably don't go to the library that often to look something up. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in the old days, that's what we had to do. If you wanted to know the answer to something and it wasn't in the, you know, the pages of the encyclopedia that you might have had at home, you'd go to the library to look it up. And yet, I bet if you went to those libraries, you know, 30 years ago, walked up to the head librarians or the people who've been thinking about the libraries most and said, what do you think the most exciting industries of the future are going to be? My sense is not one of them would have said library science. They wouldn't have thought, you know what, the future, uh, you know, there's incredible commercial opportunity and lots of money in library science. And yet, you know, one of the most exciting companies in the world today, Google, is a library science company. That's what they do. They organize the world's information. That's the, the essence of their mission. Um, and they do that largely through AI. A big part of how they do that is by filling in missing information. A search is a statement of intent, and they respond to that statement of intent by helping you fill in missing information through AI tools. Um, so we've seen, and it turns out that once search is cheap enough, once we can respond to uh, people's queries, once we can help people look stuff up, it's worth billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. So uh, that industry uh, you know, has been transformed from being not even an industry at all, in some sense, in the 1980s. It was something we subsidized to today where it's an incredibly profitable enterprise. You know, we can see a handful of other industries that got disrupted um, by thinking through systems and not point solutions. Okay. Uh, I think uh, personal transportation over the last little while. About um, a decade ago, there were a handful of technologies that were being developed that had the potential to change uh, transportation systems. So, for example, one of them was directions, predictions that told you how to get from point A to point B at a particular time of day, the most efficient way. Another was um, um, digital dispatch. So from your mobile device, you could order a car. And a third was uh, prediction tools on where there was a lot of pedestrian traffic that might want to go somewhere by car. And there were companies 10 years ago that were commercializing each and all of those, sometimes even together. So there was a company that was taking those predictions on where a lot of pedestrians were and using it to advise taxi drivers on where they should drive in order to get the most fares. And that, they sold it pretty successfully um, and taxi drivers used it and it made the less good taxi drivers to be a little bit more like the best taxi drivers. So it closed the gap between the lower income and the higher income taxi drivers by about 14%. But it's a point solution, right? It's helping taxi drivers into the taxi industry. And we had similarly, we had companies that were providing digital dispatch to taxi companies or directions to taxi drivers. There was one company that figured out this, uh, or at least one company, there are a few, that these together were more than just point solutions that you could create a new industry. And so Uber took 
these and other technologies and built a new system for transportation. This wasn't about them just selling back into the taxi industry. Uh, it was about enabling anybody effectively to be a taxi driver uh, to provide other people with rides. You needed the digital dispatch. You needed the predictions from how to get from point A to point B. Because otherwise, the first time you got into an Uber and the Uber driver didn't know where they were going would be the last time you got into an Uber. So actually, that those, those AIs were fundamental to it. And you needed a way to tell the Uber drivers where to go in order to get the most fares. And that was through all sorts of creative innovation on their pricing system. So there was all this suite of technology led to a new system that allowed them to really deliver value in a way that they couldn't before. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so important. I mean, it's this idea, it's kind of how innovation disruption works in a lot of ways with things like the innovator's dilemma and things like uh and companies like that, this idea of point solutions giving us great lessons and finding ways to connect them and finding ways to innovate and finding ways to question the value of why we innovate. And I think prediction machines and AI is such an important part of that future. And that's one thing I loved about your writing as well. And I'm excited about your new book, Power and Prediction, is because it's taking these really complex topics, AI, economics, uh, prediction machines, of complex math and it it's it's taking it down to how does it actually work what are the steps what is the basis of it because i think this idea of storytelling exactly is that in pop culture when we hear ai we are consistently told stories of like the terminator or like um uh the the big scary robots right and i think uh it's something that is so interesting with your writing is just kind of taking it down to this is how it works these are the steps it takes and this is why it's so important and why we have to get better at it. Uh, so I'm excited about your new book. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. I'm excited yeah. too. Uh, we're It's coming out November 15th and uh, we've got a, a fair bit of, of attention already to it. And we're, we're looking forward to uh, really, like ultimately the goal is to accelerate the time till these innovations happen. And so... The between times for electricity and for computers lasted 40 years. Um, We've learned a lot since then. And there's reasons to be optimistic the between times for AI. So far, we're five years in. They might only be five or 10 years. And that's that's our goal is to, as you think through what those new systems look like, uh, how can we build better companies in order to really deliver value to change the way we live and the way we work? close out every one of our episodes, we uh, have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a fun, random question that's not related to anything whatsoever, and you can give us any answer you feel like. Question of the day is, if you had to wear a hat for the next week, what type of hat would you choose? So my favorite hat is uh, is a baseball cap. So in fact, all the hats I own are baseball caps. So we're limited to that. Um, and uh, so I have one baseball cap that's like the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is like the economics uh, organization that uh, that I'm a part of. But I feel like for the next week, that's not gonna be my one. The, the hat I want is the Creative Destruction Lab AI uh, stream hat. And that's to say like, 
the lab has been so important to how I understand technological change generally and AI in particular. Our book is coming out. Uh, what do I want to let people know about and show off is that through our lab, we've seen amazing technology and to try to project that, you know, as I talk about power and prediction. Fashion and intellectual statement. Love it. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had a pretty cool AI prediction machine technical expert storyteller, didn't we Kev? Oh yes, Dr. Avi Goldfarb is obviously a very accomplished and insightful expert uh, in the field of artificial intelligence. So we got to talk to him about a lot of the stuff involving AI, um, trying to, to demystify what the concept is a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the reasons we love talking about emerging and exciting technology on this show is because learning the stories and what technologies have the best storytelling through buzzwords, through articles, through pop culture, often helps you tell what is going to be the future. Because if enough money is excited about it, enough positive storytelling is happening, that's going to be the research that's funded. And if the research is funded, that's going to push forward the mission. And that kind of talks about, uh, Kevin, this idea of demystifying AI. AI is talked about constantly in pop culture. And we talked about it with Dr. Goldfarb a little bit. This idea of like the Terminator or like, the evil warlords or like the future of technology and pop culture and science fiction really gets to explore these worlds because it's not real because it's it's one world so but because all these really exciting stories have been told about it it kind of mystifies what ai is and there's a lot of healthy skepticism but that's why i what i love about uh dr gofab's work is that in his book prediction machines in his new book they they take AI and they, they bring it down to its core of prediction machines. They explain that these are machines that makes predictions. And by rebranding it, by bringing it down to its core, it becomes a little bit more palatable to talk about uh, and it allows us to focus in a little bit more and kind of disconnect it from some of this like, Terminator stuff, disconnect it from some of this broad deep learning or broad neural net things and focusing on one part of artificial intelligence that is making impacts today and it allows us to really understand the economics behind it absolutely and on the flip side of that we also got a bit into you know the importance of understanding your mission uh, when you're a business trying to uh, figure out how to integrate ai into your uh, day-to-day workflow and as powerful as the prediction machine is it is just a tool and it requires people in the business who understand uh, what what your mission is what business problem you're trying to solve to be able to figure out okay where can i apply ai uh, into my workflow where can i plug this machine in and also how do i utilize this machines to make sure that it'll make predictions that i'll allow me to make more efficient decisions. And mission, of course, is a very important, a very storytelling involved process. So a good understanding of your mission and your story 
is also crucial to knowing uh, how you can leverage the prediction machine. Yeah, it's uh, seeing the forest behind the trees, right? It's this idea that if you remember what your mission is, is stay true to it, it helps you avoid the airport scenario where instead of making an airport more efficient, you're making an airport more fun and making it more nice and like, oh, our airport's great. While you're waiting, you can do these 10 things. Most people would be like, well, instead of waiting, I'd rather just do those things at home and then be able to get on my flight fast, right? It's it's seeing the, the forest beyond the trees and remembering that even with exciting technology, even with these buzzwords, even with these short-term profit gains, one of the most key things is to remember your mission and see how you can build that technology in uh, your story. So remembering the story of the technology, remembering the story of your company and saying, hey, is this just exciting? Is this just something someone's talking about? Is this persuasive storytelling? Or is this actually going to help our core mission, our core story of the company? Anyways, it was really interesting to talk to Dr. Gopab this week to talk about technology, how storytelling affects emerging technology, to talk about how storytelling affects businesses, how AI is a disruptive technology that can really change the world. And that's going to do it. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. Uh, Also, feel free to leave us a comment or review to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. We'll see you next time.